What would it be like if we were uh, confronted with divine silence? No more word of God. No more words from God. Just a total lack. A complete famine. And given that people don't live by bread alone, but they live on every word that comes out of the mouth of God, would that kind of famine, a divine silence, be the worst kind of famine imaginable? This is our uh, third week listening to the the shepherd of Tekoa. And this morning, the challenge is not only to listen, but to visualize what he shares. Because in chapters uh, 7 and 8 of Amos, we are invited to reflect on four very powerful word pictures. And each of them is striking, each of them is reasonably provocative, and certainly they're all fascinating on so many levels. And so what I want us to do is, I want us to listen and imagine And so if you have a Bible or uh, if you want to turn to one of the Bibles that are in the pews, we're going to look at Amos chapter 7. And I'm going to read the first six verses. It's page 921 in the Bibles that are in the pews. So as we often do here at Windsor, can I invite you to stand for the public reading of God's word? This is what, says Amos, the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested and just as the late crops were coming up. And when they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. Please take a seat. So we've got swarms of locusts that are going to strip the land bare. And we have a shower of fire that is so severe. I want you to try to picture this. A shower of fire that is so severe that it even dries up the deep. And as you visualize those disturbing images, note their source. God's preparing the locusts. God is calling for the shower of fire to rain down. And as you contemplate the potential and devastating effects, you can understand why Amos cries out, forgive, stop. And somewhat surprisingly, God does. The visions don't become reality. Danger is diverted. What seemed inevitable isn't. So the question is, why? Why? Well, twice we read this phrase in response to Amos' prayer. So the Lord relented. If you've got a King James Version, what it actually reads is this. 
the Lord repented for this. Now, that probably sends our heads spinning and our thoughts racing. The Lord repenting. It's an interesting idea. And what we are confronted with here is the mystery of prayer. The mystery of intercessory prayer. Now, I am not going to stand up here this morning and try to offer you a rational explanation for why God repents. Mainly because I have no clue. And how could I? God's ways are not my ways. His thoughts are high above. If God chooses to repent, that's God's providence. But what you have here, and this is all I can say, is another example of God listening to the prayers of one person, answering those prayers, and even being prepared to change his mind in response to those prayers. And so whenever people ask you, does praying to God really make a difference? Does it change anything? Does it influence anything? Well, Amos would certainly step forward and say, do you know something? Praying to God makes all the difference in the world. I want to ask you, what have you cried out to God about this week? Or maybe a better question is this, what have you not prayed about because of your honesty query the point? What difference is it going to make? Prayer changes things. The question is, do we, do we really believe that? It can even change God's mind. God then gives Amos a third word picture. So if it swarms of locusts, with it a shower of fire. Verse 7 we discover God is standing, and if you follow this, God's standing beside a wall. And it's a wall that's built right. It's built true. And in his hand, God is holding a plumb line, one of these things. And God says to Amos, well, what do you see, Amos? And Amos says, I see a plumb line. It's interesting that Amos doesn't really pay much attention to the wall. It's the device that's in God's hand that he notices. And then God says, I'm going to set this plumb line up against my people. In other words, I'm going to check something. I'm going to check them. I'm going to see what they're like. And clearly what he finds is not good. What he finds is not right. What he finds is not upright. What he finds is not level. What he finds is not true. And then you read these sobering words, end of verse 8. I will spare them no longer. In other words, your time's up. Your chances are now over. The opportunity is gone. And what's really interesting for me here is there's no prayer from Amos. First two visions, yes, Amos prayed. This time, no prayer. No cry to God on behalf of others. Why not? Well, according to one writer, the answer is simple. You see, testing is an inseparable part of the experience of the people of God. And Amos knew that testing goes with the territory. If you're part of the people of God, then testing goes with the territory. It's designed to demonstrate the reality of your profession. 
It's actually designed to test the authenticity of your claims to be part of the family of God. And if anything, we're actually meant to pray to God and ask him to test us. Search me, O God, and know my heart, cries the psalmist. Test me. Stand before you this morning and I ask you, God, to test me and know my thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me and then lead me in the way of everlasting. You see, these people, 8th century BC Israel, they thought they were okay. They sang the songs, and those who've been journeying through the series will know this. They sang all the right songs. They turned up each week to church. They offered the sacrifices. They marked the key dates. But as God tested their claims, as God tested their rituals, as God tested their lifestyles, as he held this plumb line up against their spiritual lives, it was glaringly obvious that they were just all over the place. Their worship was heartless. Their treatment of others, particularly the poor and the oppressed, was shocking. Their self-obsession was sickening. Their refusal to repent, their refusal to come home was alarming. Their injustice was appalling. And their consistent rebellion, their constant sinning for three sins of Israel, even for four, all of that was undeniable. And God can't keep turning a blind eye. God can't just look at that and walk away. Can't just pack up the plumb line and ignore the reality. And so it's time to bring them down. I will spare them no longer. Judgment, punishment is imminent. And it, it is sobering. But then, at this point, someone answers back. Hasn't happened to date. For those of us who've been reading Amos, we've got used to hearing just one voice. The prophet's voice. It's been a monologue, but now it's a dialogue. One guy just can't take it any longer. And if you like, he jumps up and interrupts the sermon. What a nightmare. (laughs) And as he speaks, we kind of get an insight into how Amos' message is going down. How it's being received, although those who have read the first six and a half chapters probably realize that it can't have been going down very well. And Amaziah is a priest. He's one of the spiritual elite. He's one of the representatives of the people. But before he actually challenges Amos to his face, he decides to voice off to others. And don't you just hate that? That when someone disagrees with you, when someone has a problem with something you've said, rather than go directly to you, they go and talk about you behind your back. happened to Amos. And Amaziah alerts the powers to be and he suggests a conspiracy theory. It's there in verse 10. That's what he says has taken place, which only demonstrates how little this particular guy has understood of what Amos has been saying. Amos is no political conspirator. And so Amaziah starts by misrepresenting the prophetic voice, but then he decides, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to shut it up. And so he confronts Amos directly, and this is what he says. It's there in verse 12. Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. In other words, go back to where you came from. Earn your bread there. Do your prophesying there. And Amaziah attempts to do what so many people want to do. They want to silence the prophetic voice. They just want to send it packing. 
And it's really interesting how Amaziah doesn't try to justify Israel's behavior. In light of everything that Amos is saying, Amaziah isn't going to try to justify why the people have been been behaving the way they've been behaving. Nor does he even have a go at Amos' criticisms of the people. He simply just says, listen, I don't want to hear it anymore. And I suppose you you can kind of understand that because uncomfortable words that challenge your complacency are never easy to hear. And rather than try to kind of like rationalize them and explain them and engage with them, what you prefer, at least what I often prefer, is I just prefer not to hear them anymore. I'd like to just shut down God's voice in my life. Because God often speaks at a very deep level. And it can be unnerving and it can be unsettling. And how we respond is critical. And I suppose the question is, as we journey through this series, is how are we responding as a church to the message of Amos, which we've said wasn't just only relevant for the people of God, what, 3,000 years ago, but still has something to say to us today. And here in this place at this time, no one's willing to listen. No one's prepared to process this. No one's prepared to personalize it. And so disaster is assured. Consequences are unavoidable for Amaziah. His response or his non-response to the word of God is catastrophic. Have a look at this with me. And we read one of those therefores. Choice consequences. Amaziah had a choice. He had a choice on how he was going to respond to God's word. He chose to respond to it in a particular way. Here's the consequences. Your wife will become a prostitute. In the city. And your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up and you yourself will die in a pagan country and Israel will surely go into exile. See, whenever you reject God's word, the implications are personal. He tried to silence, he tried to ignore the prophetic voice. And we live in a world, we live in a society, we live in a time where that's happening all around us. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to be confronted by it. And so we have to await the consequence. Just before we leave this, we come to the, uh, and come to the fourth word picture. Let me just say something else that you can learn from this incident. And that is that Amos did choose to speak up. He did choose to stand for God's values and as a result he faced opposition and ridicule and he got a negative reaction and and for those of us who are Christians we know that whenever sometimes we stand up for God's word when we stand up for God's values then we often experience opposition of some kind and Jesus speaking into that situation and making the connection between us And the prophetic word said this, blessed are you when people insult you, whenever they persecute you because of me, falsely say all kinds of evil things because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then we come to the fourth visual image. It's at the beginning of chapter 8. And here's what Amos sees in this fourth vision. 
It's what the sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. And what do you see, Amos, he asked? A basket of ripe fruit, he answered. And if you pause there for a moment, you think to yourself, well, surely this is a very different image this time. I mean, this is not a swarm of locusts. This is not a shower of fire. It's not even a measuring device. It's a basket of summer fruit. It's a positive image. It's a hopeful image. It's an appealing image. And yet the message that it communicates is anything but positive, appealing, and hopeful. Because then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe. For my people Israel, I will spare them no longer. You see, the only thing that they were ripe for would appear is judgment. The people have decided not to listen. The people have decided not to repent. The people have decided not to return. The people have decided not to seek God and live as we thought about last week. And so, here we have it again. God was prepared to change, but the people weren't. And so there's nothing more that Amos can say. Hence, the last word of verse 3. Have a look at it. Silence. The time for talking is over. There's nothing more anybody can say, but there is something more that the people need to hear. Look at verse 4 of chapter 8. Hear this, you who trample the needy. Hear this, you who do away with the poor of the land. And once again, God returns to confront his people about their attitude towards others. And this time he actually challenges them about their attempts at trying to mix up religious ritual with dishonesty and exploitation. Because what seems to be happening here, and look at verse 5, is the people are observing the Sabbath day. It's great. But they cannot wait for the Sabbath day to be over so that they can exploit the people. It's incredible. So they observe the Sabbath day but they are longing for it to finish so that by the next day they can go back to taking advantage of people. They can cheat them and treat them as good. You see, what we have here is a situation where the people of God looked at people and saw things. They were just commodities. The people of God looked at others but only thought of themselves. And that turned out to be the sin above all sins. You see, we've said it so many times during this series, and I know it is sometimes hard to just keep hearing something time and time again, and yet it's one of the messages that comes through this prophetic word. And that is that how we treat people really does matter to God. Really matters. And whenever Jesus painted a picture in Matthew 18 of a servant who lost mercy, please stay with me on this one, Whenever Jesus painted a picture of a servant who lost mercy because he failed to show mercy, Jesus went on to tell us that he was allowing us to look into the very heart of God. And Jesus went on to say this, This is how my heavenly Father will treat you. And if you read the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, how that person is treated is quite frightening. And what Jesus says here is, this is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive a brother or sister from your heart. And via that parable, Jesus was making the point, and rather strongly making the point, that God will not forgive the unforgiving and will not show mercy to the unmerciful. And the people of God in Amos' day dramatically failed to show mercy to others, and here they discover that they are not going to receive Mercy from God. How could they expect to? 
One writer in his great commentary that, that one of you gave me on the book of Amos says this, Nothing is left for those who turn their faces away from the needy or who exploit the needy for their own gain than that God will turn his face away from them. This is the grim but biblically realistic truth of Amos 8, 1 to 10. Which of the three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers on the Jericho Road was a question someone asked Jesus on one occasion whenever they wanted to discover how to get eternal life. And Jesus' reply was this, the one or sorry, the man's reply was this, the one who had mercy on him. And here was Jesus' reply. You go and do likewise. You go and show mercy. And then you'll discover eternal life. See, how we treat others has eternal implications. And what we find in these chapters, and I'm nearly done before we move into communion, what we find in these chapters is a reminder of the inward, outward, upward dimension to the Christian faith. That actually our inward attitude to sin and holiness is vital. That we need to be people who say, okay God, please search my heart. Please test my thoughts. Please hold a plumb line up against my life. Because how I live, the internal quality of my life really is important. I care about spiritual formation. I want to become more like Jesus. I want to see the fruit of the Spirit grow and flourish and be displayed in my life. I want people to meet someone who exhibits love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control inward dimension of my faith is really important but then there is the upward dimension that yes the love that I express the concern that I have for those around me particularly the poor and the needy and the marginalized and the oppressed and the downtrodden that matters to you as well that true Christian faith is revealed in my love for my neighbor there's got to be an outward dimension And then finally, although I know they're all meshed together, there's an upward dimension that our worship of God, our response to God's word, shapes us. God speaks constantly into our lives and then we are invited to respond in love and to respond in obedience as we then communicate with and relate to and engage with our Creator. And when any of those three dimensions go missing, whenever we no longer embrace the call to holiness or reach out to those around us or submit in worship and submit to the Word of God, whenever we neglect the in, out and up dimensions of our faith, we lose our way and God's heart breaks. And for the people in Amos' day, all three were tragically non-existent. And therefore the future is bleak. And look at verse 7 of chapter 8, where God makes a promise that is, again, a very sobering promise. God promises never to forget what they've done. I'm never going to forget what you have done. And you're going to experience darkness in the midst of broad daylight. You see, at 12 noon, the sun's going to disappear. Your festivals are going to become occasions for grief. Your singing is going to descend into tears. You're going to have to wear sackcloth and you're going to have to shave your heads. 
But it's the famine. And here we finish. It's the famine that is referred to here that is surely the most striking aspect of God's judgment. Last week, if you were here, we looked at how God sent a literal famine, a literal famine to try and encourage his people back. We read this last week where God said, I gave you empty stomachs, I gave you lack of bread in every town, but you would not return to me. Here, the famine is of an entirely different kind. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine throughout the land, not a famine of food or a thirst of water, but I'm going to send a famine of hearing The words of God. There is going to be a divine silence. And as I said at the very start, God has made it clear, Jesus affirmed it in the Gospels. People don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so whenever that word is withdrawn, whenever that word is no longer offered, whenever that word is no longer spoken, people starve. People waste away. Because it's only God's word that sustains at the deepest level. And therefore for these people, that particular blessing, that food source is gone. They're now left to exist in a context of divine silence. With little or no chances of recovering. And when they reach that place, it says then that they go searching for it and they long to find it. But according to verse 12, they will not locate it. It's too late for them. And for us, we still have this. The written word of God. That still speaks. That still connects. That still communicates. That still engages with our hearts and our minds we are not confronted with divine silence but the real question is what are we hearing what do we hear in God say to us are we listening there is a danger that we can withdraw ourselves from God's word that we can create a famine that we can engage in the wrong type of fast tonight we're going to be thinking about the right kind But it is possible to engage in the wrong kind. And I just want to finish up this morning by thanking God that we do not exist in a context where there is a divine silence. That that divine whisper is still there. Still speaking. And so as I lead us in prayer, I invite you to consider the inward, outward, upward dimension of your faith. I invite you to consider what what has God been saying to you this week through his word? What is God saying to us as a church through this journey in the Minor Prophets? And then we'll lead in the communion. Let's pray together. Father, I I do again want to thank you that your word is a guide, as we sang a while ago. And as the psalmist affirmed, that it's a lamp and a light to our feet. 
that your word nourishes us spiritually. That we live on it. That we're invited to feast on it. And God, I ask that you would save us from a fast of the wrong kind. God, your word is challenging. Recognize that. It was so challenging for these people. And yet there was an unwillingness to listen. There was an unwillingness to hear. And so it got to a point where that voice was removed. And the words stopped. And I thank you, God, we here find ourselves living at a time and in a moment in time whenever your word continues to speak. And as we approach this table, we thank you for the word that became flesh and lived among and died for. And as we this morning reflect further on our response to your written word, we also begin to prepare our hearts and minds to reflect on the sacrifice of the word who became flesh. And so as we sit before you this morning as a group of people and consider our inward and outward and upward dimension to our faith, May you help us to respond accordingly and then to offer you thanks for the hope we have in Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.